Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. And a happy Valencrimes Day to you all at home. Happy Valencrimes. It's my my favorite uh, crime-focused holiday of the year. <laughs> okay, what, what are some others that don't quite make the cut? Columbus Day, I mean, for genocide. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably my least favorite. Okay. Yeah. I don't know, President's Day? Yeah. That's not very good. Not full of criminals, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, let, let's get criminal. Let's get criminal. Criminal. I want to hear your lawyer talk. So you're carrying on our tradition mm-hmm. of Valen crimes. Uh, and we are really carrying on the tradition of keeping it local. Okay, local to us, at least. Local to us. We're going to talk about some Chicago crime. <laughs> Because apparently we don't get enough of it. I feel like we're never going to run out. It's a sustainable resource. Well, we're going to talk about something I've thought about talking about for a while. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll do something non-Chicago. And then that Riverdale episode happened. <laughs> uh, what about Riverdale inspired this, dear? So the the juvenile de- uh, det- detention center mm-hmm. uh, that was used in an episode was called the Leopold and Loeb Detention Center, and I about die. (laughs) Because that means a jail is named after some child murderers. Mm -hmm. Murderers who were children. And who murdered a child. Turn murdered children. Well, Well, they weren't really children. They weren't really children. They were young adults. Young adults who murdered a child. And I don't think they named jails... After the people inside them. Well, just wait until uh, the the Michigan prison is renamed for Jack Kevorkian. Yeah. So all, all the time he spent there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So we are we are talking about Leopold and Loeb. My favorite boy band. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised no one used that for like I don't know a heavy metal band or an emo <laughs> band or something. Hmm. Uh, but we're talking about them and the murder of Bobby Franks. Ah. Let's, let's learn a little bit about these murderers first. These, these scamps, these ne'er-do-wells. Boys will be boys, dear. Yeah, well, yeah, hmm. But the thing to know about these two, uh, dudes is they were very rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nathan Leopold, uh, was a child prodigy. That was born in 1904 in Chicago to a wealthy German-Jewish immigrant family. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's said that he spoke his first word at four months and that uh, he spoke 15 languages and scored like a 210 on the IQ test of the time, which Mm -hmm. is like measured differently now, but still considered like, either way. Yeah. He was also an ornithologist. Um, He like studied birds biology of birds Mm -hmm. Uh, and he gained some recognition he was part of a group that identified the kirtland's warbler uh, which is a songbird and it hadn't been seen in chicago for like 50 years well if people would just call yeah the warbler is in the book people yeah at at the time of uh the murder Mm -hmm. uh he was 20 uh and had just completed his undergraduate work at University of Chicago. Ah, there And was you go. doing some graduate work and was planning to attend Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. His counterpart, uh, <laughs> Richard Loeb, was born uh, in 1905 in Chicago, also to an extremely wealthy family. 
Um, his father was a lawyer and the retired vice president of Sears Roebuck and Company. Uh-huh. He was also noted for being, like, in- extremely intelligent, skipping several grades, um, becoming University of Michigan's youngest graduate at 17. But he was also seen as, like, lazy and extremely unmotivated to do much <laughs> other than just graduate. Like, he wasn't really, like, interested in doing much with his life. If he applied himself, he could have graduated college at 14. <laughs> right. He was also known for being obsessed with crime, reading novels and detective stories and newspaper crime reports. Is that a, is that a warning sign for I, anything? I do want to say, like... Is that... Should I be concerned about anybody in that my life? That doesn't necessarily mean anything. That, that might have that going on. Darling, what you're missing is I didn't graduate early from anything, so we're <laughs> fine. <laughs> I'm definitely no child prodigy. Oh, you, you also aren't a millionaire. I'm definitely not a millionaire. Okay. Those are the ones you have to watch out for. I, I have a, no wealth, <laughs> so you're really safe that I'm not going to murder someone. Uh, so both of them grew up on the south side of Chicago in the Kenwood neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, which is about five miles south of downtown. Um, starting in 1860, Kenwood became one of the places for Chicago's most, most wealthy residents to live. Mm -hmm. Uh, The area continued to grow with large mansions being built for a few decades. Um, It actually wasn't until like the L like stretched into the neighborhood in like 1907 or something that any like apartment type building started popping up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this area is just north of Hyde Park and the University of Chicago and Jackson Park, which is where the 19 or the 1893 World's Fair happened. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about that. (laughs) <laughs> stuff on and off before trying to like map out Chicago in your brain. It's also uh where Obama lives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You you passed his house. I did go by his house once. Yeah, they made you cross the street. I was not allowed to walk on that side of the sidewalk, no. No, no. Uh, Mandy Patinkin also lived there. Oh. He grew up there. Nice. Yeah. The Loeb family also owned uh, a summer estate in northern Michigan, in Charlevoix. Uh, This is kind of weird because it was like a 1,600-acre farm. It was like a model farm. So it was Uh to showcase, like... They're just growing Tyra Banks's, (laughs) as far as the eye can see. It was to showcase, like, prize livestock and then, like, new farm farm equipment and, like, technologies Mm -hmm. that were used. Um, especially new farm stuff that, like, Sears sold. Mm-hmm. That's what it actually okay. was, not not Tyra Banks. Not just waving fields of hair extensions? No. Okay. Um, they, they bred uh, prize-winning livestock. Um, they established, like, a mail-order business of syrup, honey, and butter and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you do if you have a farm, I guess. I don't know. Or if you want to advertise on podcasts. Well, hey, listeners, do you like butter? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to eat butter? Well, now you can get butter delivered right to you. It might go bad by the time it gets there, but that's okay. <laughs> so so they closed down their farm in, in 1927. A lot of stuff was going on in the 20s <laughs> that probably led to that. Uh, but the property stayed in the families till the 60s. It was sold a few times, renovated. Uh, in 1969, the owners used it for rock concerts. Uh, including having bands like Aerosmith, ACDC, and Metallica perform there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, currently, it's restored to its original condition. 
and is used for weddings and festivals. And apparently the Charlevoix Renaissance Festival happened there for a while. <laughs> Didn't know they had one, but apparently they do. Or did. Or did, yeah. I couldn't find an actual, like, website for it nowadays. <laughs> um, but as of 20, uh, 2012, it was still happening. So uh, bo- both these dudes uh, lived close to each other, and they, they grew up kind of knowing each other. But it wasn't until uh, 1920, when they were both at uh, University of Chicago, like a friendship started to really grow. When they became literal partners in crime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then they were brought together by their, like, interest in crime as well, like, just, like, reading stuff. Now, Leopold was fascinated by Nietzsche's concept of supermen, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so individuals who, like, had extraordinary and unusual uh, capabilities and whose intellect allowed them to rise above the rest in, like, society's standards and rules. Right. He believed he was one of those. Okay. Uh, that he was not bound to rules or ethics. And he convinced Loeb that he also fell into this category. Well, naturally. They're rich. Yep. The rules don't apply to them. Yep. Uh, so the two began to try small acts of theft and vandalism to test this out. <laughs> uh, they br- broke into a fraternity house and stole small items, including a typewriter, which they would later use for a ransom note. Uh, and they also then moved on to slightly bigger things like arson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no one really seemed to notice, and at least not enough to like get any media coverage or in the newspaper. And they were really upset about this. <laughs> they, they wanted people to be talking about what they were doing. So don't light fires, get an agent. <laughs> and then light fires, I guess. What must your parents think? They remember the fire. <laughs> You're not allowed to live on the south side one generation out of the Great Fire and then light fires. (laughs) So they planned to perform what they called the perfect crime Mm -hmm. that would confirm their status as supermen. All of the other criminals would like hold up a a 10 out of 10 card. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, and, And it would be something that would gain media attention. And they would see how, you know, the media or like the authorities were stumped by their crime and couldn't figure it out and it would you know go unsolved for Mm -hmm. centuries Mm -hmm. type thing like this was their plan like nobody cares about any unsolved crime after centuries none of them not too much no you know once in a while they kind of disappear and then they resurface for a while i think once the survivors are dead are yeah yeah then we probably stop no we don't uh, so their perfect cr- crime was to kidnap and murder a kid. That's that's what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. And they spent several months planning out every step of the crime. What they would do once they kidnapped someone, uh, how they would demand a ransom, mm-hmm. what they would do with the body, all that. And they spent a lot of time deciding on where to find a suitable victim. They spent a lot of time around the grounds of the Harvard School for Boys in Kenwood, which was the local like school um, that Loeb attended mm-hmm. when he was younger. Uh, and they picked Robert Franks, uh, known as Bobby. He was a 14-year-old to a very wealthy family uh, that Loeb knew because they were second cousins. Ah. Which I'm like, I don't know why you had to spend so much time <laughs> deciding if you're just going to go with your cousin. Yeah, yeah. 
It's not a perfect crime if you're finding someone that is directly connected to you. Who lives across the street from you. Yeah. Who comes over and plays tennis. You know the perfect unsolvable crime? All the ones they did earlier that no one paid any attention to. You did it. You got away with it. I'm starting to think these boys aren't as bright as they claimed. So on uh, May 21st, uh, 1924, they, they put their plan into action. Leopold rented a car under the name Morton D. Ballard, uh, and they drove around the neighborhood and up to Frank's, who was walking home, and offered him a ride. And initially he's like, no, I'm good. Like, I live two blocks from here. <laughs> I don't, I'm fine. I don't like my cousins that much. They're weird. Well, only one of them is his cousin. Eh. But, uh, but they convinced him to get in the car, and, and he got into the, the front seat. What happens here is a little bit up to debate. Um, uh-huh. There's conflicting statements on who was driving the car and who was in the back seat of the car. We know that the victim was in the front passenger seat. Yes, we know that. <laughs> the rest of the seating chart is de- up it's, for debate. It's up for debate. Okay. But we know he got in and he sat on the front and they went off driving and then whoever was in the back seat hit him multiple times with a chisel on the head. Oh. And then dragged him into the back seat onto the floor and gagged him and he died. And the the real sad thing is that back then they didn't have a Culver's there. So <laughs> Well, that's about twenty blocks farther south than the Culver's. Yeah, and a century apart. So. Yeah. Um, so they Drove to their planned dumping ground, Hammond, Indiana, which is about 25 miles from Chicago. And they put him in a drainage pipe close to the railroad tracks and the lake and removed his clothing and poured acid on him, including making sure they got, like, his scar that they figured would be pretty identifiable. Oh, okay. They left and went back to the city, burned their clothes, cleaned the car. Frank's by then was known to be missing. Uh, It takes a long time to burn your clothes and clean your car, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Leopold uh, called Frank's mother, said he was George Johnson, and that Bobby had been kidnapped and told her instructions for delivering a ransom would come Uh in future phone calls. Um, They also mailed an official ransom note they typed out on the stolen typewriter. An official ransom note. It was notarized. Well, like... Here's our ransom. We hereby, the undersigned, do officially <laughs> ransom. And then they spent the rest of the night playing cards. <laughs> so so the next morning, they called and told the family the first set of ransom instructions, because they were making several phone calls. Of, you have to go here to do this, and then we'll call you there, and you'll get the next thing, and on mm-hmm. and on. In the form of a Simon Says. Yes. Yeah. This is where their uh, plan had a series of uh, issues come up. <laughs> so... One of the family members uh, who was involved in, like, receiving this information forgot the address of the store where they were supposed to go for the next step mm-hmm. and didn't go. Okay. I feel like if I was trying to, to rescue my loved one from nefarious kidnappers, I would write it down. Right? I would get a pen and paper and I would write it down. Well, and you're like, dang, that's bad. But then shortly after, someone discovered the body (laughs) and the family was notified and they're like, well, screw the ransom. We know he's dead. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like there might be a hole in this perfect ransom plan. Yeah. 
So once they found out that the body was found, they destroyed the typewriter. Uh, they burned the rope that was used to move the body. And I was like, I don't know why you kept that rope around when you were burning other stuff. <laughs> uh, and they were absolutely sure that they had covered their tracks and they went about their life as normal. Mm -hmm. As normal as these two people could possibly be, I guess. Yeah. Um, so police launched an investigation. Loeb was really going about his daily life. But Leopold was like talking to police and reporters offering them theories about what he thought happened because of his, like, uh -huh. amazing intellect. Right, right. Like like those serial killers that can't not send notes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, they never would have caught the Unabomber if he just wouldn't have tried to be pen pals. Because he was the one that was in Michigan, right? Timothy McVeigh is not, not the Unabomber. Not the Unabomber. He blew up the Oklahoma City Federal Building. I always, like, confuse that they're not he, the same thing. Timothy McVeigh had a truck bomb. The Unabomber had mail bombs. Many mail bombs. <sighs> I don't know why I always attach them. Well, Timothy they, McVeigh. They were, they were both active when we were children. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think well, very young very, children. Very, So young I think children. they morph in my brain. But Timothy McVeigh, my family totally drove past his house in the thumb of Michigan that was getting raided by the FBI when we were on our way to the beach. <laughs> and we couldn't stop at our favorite ice cream place because <laughs> there was a roadblock to the gas station. Anyways. Anyways. But yeah, so they Leopold kept talking to them. Like they, he even was like quoted talking to a reporter about like, well, if he was a murderer, <laughs> of course he would choose some little bitch like Bobby Franks. Uh huh. Yeah. See, this is why they needed to hire an agent. Yeah. Somebody to run these things past. <laughs> like, no, that's a really bad idea. Don't say that. Um. So police found uh, a pair of eyeglasses near the body. Mm hmm. Which was a game changer because oh. this pair of eyeglasses had a very unusual part to it, a specific patented hinge on it that oh. was only made by like a certain company. Okay. And they had recently set up a shop in Chicago and they had only since sold three pairs of those eyeglasses in the city of Chicago. <laughs> and so they tracked down the owners of the three pairs. Uh, one who was out of the country, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one who belonged to a woman who woman who had her eyeglasses, okay, and the other being Leopold. Well, there's a lead right there. I I call that a I call that a lead right there. So when they questioned him about his eyeglasses, he was like, "Well, I probably lost them on a bird watching trip because you know I study birds and stuff." Yes. And sometimes the birds fly at my face because they're like, I've been living in obscurity for 50 years. You ever think I liked it that way? Yeah. 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 And he lost his glasses. Yeah. Um, they also found a destroyed typewriter uh, in the Jackson Park Lagoon around this time that, you know, they couldn't really trace. But Is the Jackson Park Lagoon? What? The one behind MSI. Yeah. Yep. That, that was dug out for the fair. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. And where more recently there was like a severed head found? Don't go in that lagoon. I guess that's next year's Valen Crimes. <laughs> so Leopold and Loeb were brought in for questioning on May 29th. Uh, they claimed they were out uh, and about on the town that night and were, were driving Leopold's <laughs> we were car. We were the town red. We were picking up dames. <laughs> yeah, they were like, we picked up two women while driving. Um, we were going to go get candy floss. <laughs> we never learned their last names and we dropped them off along the side of the road somewhere. <laughs> 
We were going to go to one of the six amusement parks that were active during the 1920s in Chicago. <laughs> going to go to a dance hall. Yeah. This fell through when uh, Leopold's chauffeur told police that he was repairing Leopold's car. I thought it would fall through when it was clear that these two guys could never pick up women because they were awful. Yeah. Yeah. That would be my first hint. Yeah. And then the chauffeur's wife confirmed that the car was parked in the garage all night. Mm-hmm. So Loeb was the first to confess. Uh, he was instantly like, hey, Leopold planned it all, everything. I was driving and Leopold committed the murder. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. So, yeah, this is why it's very important who was driving and who was in the back. Yes. Because whoever was in the back had the chisel. Yes. And Leopold confessed after that, and he was like, no, 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 I was the driver, Loeb was the murderer. (laughs) Uh, Everything else they confessed about lined up. Mm -hmm. There was just the question of, like, who was in what seat. Yeah. Um, To this day, it's unsure. Um, There was testimony from someone who said that they saw the car going by, that they saw Loeb driving. But... It's still, like, officially up for debate about that part. I feel like I should revise one of my earlier statements. The first key to the perfect crime is not confessing. I feel like that makes it really easy for them to pin a crime on you when you tell the police that, yes, I I did the crime. Yeah, I did it. I did this thing immediately. (laughs) (laughs) That should probably be in the plan. Don't confess. Well, and they went on to both admit that they did it for the thrill of the kill. Mm-hmm. That they wanted to commit a perfect crime. Uh, Leopold also spoke of how it was an intellectual exercise, uh, telling his attorney, the killing was an experiment. It is just as easy to justify such a death as it is to justify an etymologist killing a beetle on a pin. Well, what did you learn? You learned that you can't commit a good enough murder, I guess. Right. I like. I own. <laughs> Like, he's holding himself so f***ing high and mighty, and right. I'm like, you've been f***ing caught. But you, but you did it bad. You did a bad. At least the etymologist has, you know, a beetle that they can then study, sketch it. So the trial was labeled the trial of the century, mm-hmm. like other trials. <laughs> uh, there were a lot of trials of the century. Well, there are a lot of centuries. Uh, So Loeb's family hired uh, Clarence Darrow, one of the most renowned criminal defense lawyers in the country, uh, and a big opponent of capital punishment. Mm -hmm. We're we're gonna we're gonna pause and talk about him for a little bit. Sure, tell me all about Clarence Darrow. uh, So he was born in 1857. Uh, His father was an abolitionist and religious freethinker. His mother was. A female suffrage and women's rights activist. Mm -hmm. Uh, He attended college for a while and then left uh, because he decided he didn't want to be a financial burden to his family. And then he spent a few years teaching uh, school, studying law on his own. Mm -hmm. His family was like, you need to go back to school. You should go to law school. So he went to U of M law school for a year and then left. (laughs) And decided. I technically did it. The end. He decided that the best place to study law was in a law office. Right. So he went and worked for, at a law office like, for a while. You learn Spanish by going to, to Barcelona for six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So he did that. And then he took the Ohio bar exam and passed. 
Uh, and he he slowly started making a name for himself. He he started his own law firm in a small farming town in Ohio. After several years, he moved to Chicago with his family, started making connections. He did a lot of speaking for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was offered a job as an attorney for the city of Chicago, which he did for a couple years before moving on to Chicago and Northwestern Railwo- Railway Company. Now, to be fair, there were a lot fewer laws in those days, so maybe you only needed a year. Maybe you only needed a little bit of time. I love how many, like, I feel like this time period is, yes, when if you bought life insurance, you were going to kill someone. Definitely. I feel like this was also when everyone was going to law school. Yeah. It was just left and right, going to law school. It's the only thing there was school for. We were still bleeding people, practically, so medical school is kind of like, going to be a lawyer. Yeah. Going to do it. There's a surplus of lawyers. (laughs) How are they all in business? Wait, do, do you think that was the whole, like, secret of, of Leopold and Loeb's perfect crime plan? They didn't buy any life insurance. So they figured we can't possibly be The a- killers. We, we don't have life insurance. We don't have any life insurance policies Bo- on anybody. Bobby Franks don't got no life insurance. This is fine. It's the perfect crime. No one's ever going to think. There, there's a small connection with Darrow to the the Haymarket oh. trial. He was one of the ones that were very outspoken that the trial was unfair and condemned mm-hmm. what was going on. One of the many who wrote like letters and ah, publicly right, spoke right. about it. That didn't do that much. But it is one but of the ones that tried. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Clarence Darrow. <laughs> In 1894, uh, he represented Eugene V. Debs, uh, leader of the American Railway Union, who was persecuted by the f- or pr- prosecuted by the feds for leading the Pullman strike. Mm-hmm. Um, that year, he also took on his first murder case, defending Patrick Eugene Prendergast, uh, who confessed to murdering Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison Sr. Uh, At the fair. At the fair. Yes. He, he attempted an insanity defense, but failed. <laughs> uh, and he went on to become a leading labor attorney. Um, but that all kind of fell apart in 1911 when he was accused of orchestrating a bribe on a prospective juror and was charged with two counts, uh, which led to two trials, one being acquitted and the other one, there was a hung jury. Well, what do you expect? He only went to law school for one year. <laughs> He, uh, the deal came that, uh, they would not retry him as long as he didn't practice again in California. Okay. So he was like, okay, fine, let's go back to Chicago. There's 49 other states. Uh, most labor unions cut ties with him after this. So he moved on to criminal cases. Uh, he devoted himself to opposing the death penalty. Mm-hmm. In more than 100 cases, he only lost one murder case in Chicago. Uh, and he was known for moving... Uh, juries and judges to tears with his speeches. Uh-huh. Very, very long, long, long speeches. So they were bored to tears. Yes. Okay. Uh, so when he took the case of Leopold and Loeb, he stunned people uh, with having them plead guilty. Well, <laughs> when they both confessed to most of the crime... The, the only question was who had their hands on the murder weapon. Yeah. Thing is, is that everyone thought he was going to do a plea of not guilty guilty by reason of insanity. Mm-hmm. But he knew that that would lead to a jury trial, which would definitely end in conviction and the yes. death penalty. Yes. The the insanity test at the time was not one they could reasonably expect to, to pass. Yeah. 
guilty kept them away from a jury ah, and put them in front of a judge. Just just for sentencing. I see. Uh, yes. So that's what they did. <laughs> um, and he took this as an advantage to speak um, about how human behavior is influenced by psychological and physical and environmental influences and like... The boys were missing the emotion that was necessary in making decisions. Right, because they're rich. Because they're rich. Yeah. Just uh, look at the children of billionaires today. They're all monsters. <laughs> so the 32-day trial that was just basically a sentencing he- hearing mm-hmm. uh, went on. That is a long speech. It's, That's an incredibly long well, speech. Well, his closing argument lasted for 12 hours. <laughs> Where he worked to soften not only the judge, but the public opinion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that way, when the judge finally said what he was going to say, there wouldn't be as much public outcry. So he continually stated the ages of the boys Uh who were under 21. So like in the status of like the time, I mean, they considered like adult age was like 21. They could not vote. They could not vote. We could send them to work in factories, but they couldn't vote. Well, yeah. (laughs) It's not like they're 14 or anything. They they can go die in a coal mine. He he also said uh, a lot of things relating to, this is a quote here of, Never had there been a case in Chicago where on a plea of guilty, a boy under 21 had been sentenced to death. There's a lot of qualifiers in that short sentence. Yes. For 12 hours, he went on and on, and that resulted in them getting a life sentence plus 99 years. That's why everybody's always moved to tears. They're hoping he'll take it as a sign to stop. Yeah. We need a lunch break, please. We would all like to be... Now, before before we move on to what happens after the trial. I would guess life in prison plus 99 years. Yeah, well, there's a lot that happens, though. <laughs> um, Darrow uh, would go on and do the, the Scopes trial mm-hmm. that tested the Tennessee Butler Act that banned the teaching of evolution mm-hmm. um, in state-funded schools. He would also do the Sweets trial, um, which was in Detroit. A white mob attempted to drive out a black family, and one of the white men was killed so of course they arrested 11 black men charging them all with murder and he got a mistrial after arguing that the case was full of uh, prejudice and that there was an all-white jury and if this was the opposite you'd be giving them medals and things Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. so some of the biggest cases of the time was him are the celebrity lawyer of the age yes yeah um so after sentencing leopold and loeb were first sent to the joliet prison and then later to the statesville penitentiary statesville is the name of a city in like a superhero story in the sims or something that's like an intentional throwback to the golden age yeah statesville well they're only like five miles apart from each other in prisons (laughs) we could go visit either one of them oh nice how haunted are these prisons Well, you know, the Joliet prison was built with convict labor in 1865, so probably really haunted. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, It it stayed in operation until uh, 2002. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the Joliet prison 
1865, it had, like, a population of over 1,200, which was, like, a record Mm -hmm. for the time. It was ridiculously large. Uh, It did house baby face Nelson in 1933. George Nelson, born and raised hell. Yeah. Not the cows, George. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's, like, one person out there who got that (laughs) reference. (laughs) One person. Anyway, it's not the livestock. I'd like to apologize <laughs> to that one person for slightly misquoting, oh, brother, where art thou? Statesville Correctional Center actually began construction in 1917 and opened in 1925. So it was pretty, the, pretty new for these boys. Yes. Um, and they, as I said, were only like five miles or something away from each other. Mm-hmm. The Joliet Prison was supposed to close shortly after this. And, you know, be replaced with Statesville. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen. And as I said, Joliet continued to operate until 2002. Right. When they finally, like, closed it due to budget cuts and issues with the building. And I'm like, yeah, it's from 1865. There's some... There's some issues. They they couldn't afford to keep repairing this incredibly outdated uh, infrastructure. Yeah. Um, So it actually uh, sat... Like abandoned for a while. Um, and in 2018, the Juliet Area Historical Museum uh, started running tours of it. So you know where I want to go in the spring? Your birthday's coming, dear. <laughs> That's where I want to go. Um, it has been used in uh, numerous movies and TVs, including the Blues Brothers. Uh-huh. It's where he's getting out of jail at the beginning. <laughs> okay. Uh, the first season of Prison Break. <laughs> And uh, Flash, it was season two, Iron Heights. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Not the other seasons. No, just that one. Okay. Initially, both of our murderers here were receiving money from their families while in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then that, like, got cut back. Uh Uh-huh. Which the other prisoners didn't know. (laughs) And they're like, hey, rich boys, give us money. Yeah. Um, So there were several. Or, Or I will punch you. Yeah. There were several issues and altercations about that. Uh, Loeb was actually paying a former cellmate off to not hurt him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, James E. Day, he was like, here's money, please don't kill me. Um, now and- that's the perfect crime right there. <laughs> yeah. Because if you kill the child murderer, the unrepentant child murderer in prison, no one's going to care that much. That's a oh, pretty good well. crime. So in January 1936, uh, Loeb was attacked by Day with a straight razor. And died of his wounds later that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Day said it was self-defense, which he was tried and acquitted of Loeb's murder. Many people say that it is very unlikely it was self-defense due to the fact that Day had no wounds and Loeb had like 50, including his throat being slashed from behind. Uh-huh. So your theory might stand here. <laughs> I'm way better at coming up with crimes than these boys. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is where things get really, really weird. (laughs) So weird. It's hard to wrap your head around. Um, So Leopold uh, apparently became a a model prisoner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, he learned from that farm. He he learned uh, 12 additional languages (laughs) and worked to improve the education available at Statesville. Okay. Uh, He revamped the school system and the curriculum and taught other students. Uh, In 1944, he volunteered for the Statesville Penitentiary Malaria Study, um, which is where... Now, does that mean they gave him malaria? (laughs) They gave him and many others malaria. All right, okay. Uh, This was a study conducted by the Department of Medicine at the University of Chicago, along with the U.S. Army and State Department. Volunteered. 
Apparently. I guess you gotta have a hobby past the time. It's hard to know how much actual volunteering was going on, though it's said that they did get, like, you know, points towards, like, good Mm -hmm. behavior and parole if they participated in this. Sure, sure. It takes a lot of points to get out of a life sentence plus 99 years. Yeah, well, well, you know, apparently Loeb's doing really well at that. So, in addition to being a test subject, uh, he helped to recruit other inmates. Now that's the perfect crime. (laughs) You get the state to give someone malaria. Yeah. And you count it in your head as a murder. Uh, He also worked as an x-ray technician and assisted with their research of malaria. Mm -hmm. Well, in prison, he wrote his autobiography called Life Plus 99 Years, which was published in 1958. Life Plus 99 Years, the latest album from Leopold and Loeb. Um, and in this this novel started, like, immediately after the crime. With their new hit single, <laughs> I Was the Driver. <laughs> um, now, during in the 1950s, um, Leopold was approached by uh, Meyer Levin, who who requested his cooperation in writing a novel based on the murder. Um, But he said he did not want his story fictionalized, and Levin wrote it without him. Like, fine, still gonna write my book. Yeah. Uh, In 1959, Leopold tried to block production of the film version of the book on grounds that it had invaded his privacy and defamed him. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So did this movie put him in the backseat or the driver's seat? (laughs) The Illinois Supreme Court ruled against him. They said he confessed to the crime of the century and could not reasonably demonstrate that any book had injured his reputation. (laughs) (laughs) He also kicked puppies. Like, what's the worst they can say about it? Like, you you said you did it! What? (laughs) It's like he doesn't, he still doesn't think it's bad. Yeah. So that's why the next part really blows my mind. Sure, I murdered a guy for fun, but that doesn't make me a bad guy. <laughs> so, uh, right around this time is when he was paroled mm-hmm. and moved to Puerto Rico. The uh, He went and worked for the uh, Brethren Service Commission, which was connected to the Church of the Brethren. Um, which is, you know, one of the three historic uh, peace churches Okay. You got like sure. Mennonites, Quakers, Church of the Brethren, of the Brethren. is known for okay. similar things. Maybe I'll do an episode on them one of these days. Uh, they accepted him as a medical technician at a hospital in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And uh, he earned his master's at the University of Puerto Rico. He Can taught you- at the University of Puerto Rico. He did research for the Puerto Rican Department of Health and research on leprosy at the University of Puerto Rico Medical School. Can you imagine if this hospital admitted like somebody like in in the ER and they're like, this looks like a chisel injury to the back of the head. I don't know who could possibly treat this. (laughs) And then in walks in the hero, the greatest possible Uh, expert. he, He still thought that his reputation was being ruined, that he had a reputation to be ruined, and that they let him freaking out. He's clearly trying to build another one. It's mind-boggling. Yes. Because he's defending so much of what he did Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and who he was when he was 20. 
and not saying, oh, I've changed, oh, I've come, I understand what I did was wrong or this or that. Like, he's like, no, this book is <laughs> damning my reputation. Now I'm going to go live a life. Mm-hmm. So he's doing all these things, doing all this study. He he was studying birds in Puerto Rico too. He was just he constantly birds. doing research. His special uh, bird glasses are what sunk him. You better keep watching birds. Yeah. Um, and he continued to do all that until he died in 1971 of a heart attack. Now, was the heart attack driving or was the heart attack in the back seat? <laughs> That's the question you gotta ask. Yeah. Bobby Franks is is buried at Rose Hill Cemetery, which we talked about in one of our Spookums episodes. Yes. The weird thing is the markings on the tomb state that he died on the 22nd when he died on the 21st. Mm-hmm. Apparently, on May 24th, the coroner spoke to reporters, was talking about how he did an autopsy on the morning of the 22nd, and that rigor mortis had not set in yet by that time. Thus, he thought he was killed within two to five hours of then. Mm-hmm. So the date of death on his tombstone is wrong mm-hmm. because the coroner was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Probably got the cause of death right, though, in the end. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and to end this episode, another weird fact. Sure. So um, it's said that Darrow uh, was skeptical of life after death. But he did ask for his ashes uh, to be put by the small bridge that is behind MSI. In that lagoon. In that lagoon. Uh, He thought it was one of the prettiest places. It's a very pretty place. And and apparently he said that if there is a life after death, he would return to that small bridge located there on the date of his death. Uh Aha. Like, okay, if it's true, I'm going to come back there. Like every year, like annually? Yes. He'll haunt the bridge? Yes. Uh, so this bridge is the uh, Columbia Bridge, or the what is now known as Clarence Darrow Memorial Bridge. Appropriate, okay. Uh, and they've had an annual ceremony on March 13th, the date of his death, every year, for years. Do you want to go? Your birthday's coming. <laughs> well, actually, so here's uh, the thing. That bridge itself, however, was closed to pedestrians due to safety concerns in 2009. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it was actually put up for sale in 2017 um, with the plan to rebuild it this year because of its unsafe conditions. Right. It wasn't, however, put up for a price. It was put up uh, with the understanding that people had to submit a proposal for what they were going to do with it and proof that they could cover the cost to relocate the bridge. Mm-hmm. I haven't been able to find if anyone actually stepped up to that. So I don't know if this bridge is getting moved mm-hmm. sometime this year or if they're demolishing it. So if anybody from like the Clarence Darrow Historical Society or, or, or whatever has been IDOT, keeping their finger on the pulse of this, let us know. Let us know. Could not find what's been going on with said bridge. So like, I don't know, maybe we do want to trek there on March 13th and see if there's a bridge or not. Yeah. See if there's a ghost. See if there's a ghost. And uh, happy violent crimes, darling. Happy violent crimes, everybody. I hope you're feeling warm and fuzzy. <laughs> it's the reason for the season. <laughs> About murder and stuff. Well, I guess, darling, what did you learn? I learned never count out people's self-perception. Yeah. That everybody is the uh, in their own mind the hero of their story. Yep. And, and 
I, th I think that's uh, something worth remembering whenever you're trying to deal with a person or, or figure out what, what's going on with them. Did you learn about why I laughed during that Riverdale episode? Are you sure it doesn't have anything to do with Lisa Loeb? It could just I'm be a totally coincidence. I'm totally sure. Totally sure. I guess with that, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with your letters. Yeah. Hello. Hi, everybody. We've got some letters for you, and thank you very much for sending them. So let's get right to it. Joe writes in answering our prompt uh, for this episode, which was favorite kidnapping. Or kidnapper, as the case may or be. Or kidnapper. Uh, and his answer is uh, Julius Caesar uh, when he was a child. Two facts. Uh, Caesar apparently wouldn't stop reciting poetry to his captors. Uh, and when he learned of his ransom, he was so insulted with how little they were asking, he demanded that the pirates uh, double it. Kids these days, they have no, they have no uh, uh, ambition. Yeah. It's all I know you are, but what am I? And no, like, classical Greek poetry. Yeah. Joe also brings up um, some information uh, about relating to our last episode of endangered animals, mm -hmm. uh, talking about wolves in North America. The Mexican gray and red wolves are... Uh, some cool stories he wanted to share because uh, mm -hmm. both populations at one point were reaching below 15. Both have uh, captive populations that are stabilizing and some gray wolves are being released into the wild, mm -hmm. which is great. Well, But red wolves aren't able to be released because people keep shooting them because they look like coyotes. Or so the people who shoot them say. Yeah, or so they say. But why does Joe know these wonderful wolf facts? Because Joe uh, volunteers uh, with the nation's only fully internationally accredited wolf sanctuary. That is the coolest job. <laughs> that is pretty cool. That is very cool. That's incredible. Thanks for writing in, Joe. Joe is totally allowed to like wear those wolf shirts. <laughs> Anyone that wor works at a wolf sanctuary can wear those wolf shirts. I, th I think that's the work uniform. Yeah. You have to wear a three wolf moon shirt in yeah. order to work at Wolf Haven. No one else should, <laughs> but he can. Well, if you are uh, either a werewolf or a wizard. Yeah. Those are the three cases. Yeah. We got a letter from Wyatt, uh, who, who writes in with a, an interesting question. Wyatt, uh, it's so great to hear from someone from my old alma mater, but they would like to hear about our credentials to know that our podcast can be trusted to be truthful and accurate. And I appreciate the thought. Yep. Uh, I, I think it is an important question to ask in uh, times like these when every day there's a new uh, expose about how the, the platforms that deliver so much of our information uh, have had their algorithms tuned toward profit rather than reliability or truth. And we are we are reaping the uh, uh, fruits of, of those uh, uh, shameful labors. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, neither of us are formally accredited or nope. trained. Uh, we we nope. do no primary research. Uh, th this is a hobby that we do. We are we are interested amateurs, and while I think that lends a uh, a certain flair that I enjoy about our show, it, it may not be what Wyatt is looking for, and Pro that's okay. Yeah, probably shouldn't quote us in any research papers. <laughs> 
But I like to think we are a great way for people to learn things yes. and go research things more on their own. I, I hope that we point people toward those sources. Yes. Rather than being trusted as uh, experts in our own right. Yes. Uh, and sometimes we're wrong. We get corrected. <laughs> I do ask for corrections every single episode. Yeah. I might do it in, in a, or a tone of voice, but I do totally mean it. <laughs> on the other hand, I, I think our amateurness spreads... Uh, a sort of implicit message that history is something to be engaged with. It is a form of storytelling, mm -hmm. and it is something that they're always making more of. You're never going to yeah. run out. And so it, it's worth going in and grabbing two fistfuls and, and just seeing where we've been to, to hopefully point to places we could go. Yes. I like to think our show makes history more accessible to that, people. That's the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> I don't know. We get a lot of people writing in saying it's it's was never their subject. It was never the thing they cared about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we approach it in a fun-filled manner yeah. that brings them happiness. So uh, thank you, Wyatt. And hopefully you're listening to, to hear it. But just in case, I'm, I'm going to respond with the meat of that oh, in okay. email. Okay. And suggest why I listen to this whole episode to, to see what that's like in action. Yeah. Which is mostly me being very flippant about the deaths of two people. Yeah. One of whom killed one of the others. Yeah. Uh, so thanks, Wyatt. Uh, Hallie writes in, uh, was very into our last episode. Oh, thank as you. Zoology was their major in school. Oh. Um, so I had a lot of feelings about the uh, endangered and extinct species list. Mm -hmm. uh, Hallie also uh, wanted to share about a show currently on Animal Planet called Extinct or Alive. Oh. Um, because of what I said about animals being found. That they that thought. thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Thought unfindable. The, the show is hosted by the grandson or great-grandson of the guy who actually discovered uh, the coelacanth was not extinct. And the show is actually the reason that the Zanzibar leopard, um, which was dis determined to be extinct 25 years ago, is now being questioned once again as the show caught footage that has a high probability of being one. Um, uh -huh. But what about the Zanzibar land poisonous hamsters? I don't know. A certain subset of our audience is loving this right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, hamsters are kind of poisonous. Don't they have a lot of salmonella on them? <laughs> An animal doesn't have to be poisonous to be poisonous. That is don't true. Lick don't lick turtles. Don't lick turtles. Don't put them in your mouth. Hallie also answers some other prompts, uh, including this one of what is your favorite kidnapping or kidnapper? And she is going with the kidnapping of St Stephen Stainer. Uh, for two reasons, uh, Stainer was kidnapped and held for seven years, uh, during which he prevented the kidnapping of other boys. Huh. Uh, and when he was, when his captors finally, uh, managed to kidnap another kid, uh, he finally found the courage to make his escape to save not only himself, but the other boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also Stainer's older brother, Carrie Stainer, uh, ended up murdering four women. Well, you so know, that's a plot twist. Family isn't always the people you're related to. Let's say yeah. that. Hallie's also going back and answering prompt number four, uh, favorite play or musical. That's a deep cut. Uh, and is going with uh, Hamilton and a close second being Heathers. 
I hope you're excited for the upcoming uh, Riverdale episode, Big Fun. Really do. Heather's the musical. You've got to listen to this, the cast I album know, so we can talk I about know. it. I know. Also, uh, Hallie is answering uh, number our number five prompt, uh, favorite television ad, and is going with the Hump Day Camel commercials for Geico. Say it how the camel says it. Hump Day? Thank you so much, <laughs> Hallie. Thank you. Yeah. And we also got some kitty pictures. Yeah. Uh, Hallie shared uh, some pictures of Harper, Eugene, and Nina. Very sweet kitty friends. Uh, we got a letter from Rich who wanted to congratulate us for uh, Gextra Life 3 from last fall. Thank you very much for, for watching live and catching up with the rest later. Uh, and answers our current prompt with perhaps the most famous of kidnappings, another trial of the century, mm-hmm. the, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Yeah. It, it unfortunately did not end well, but it was just the biggest uh i think it's what leopold and Loeb wanted their case to be oh yeah imagine them sitting in prison and and reading the newspaper like come on they didn't they didn't even hmm, how do i make this punchline without talking about throwing acid on a baby hmm <laughs> never mind that joke i'm not gonna do it <laughs> thanks rich uh, Rocky Dennis writes in, uh, formerly known as one of the Ricks. So I guess, uh, update your charts. Yeah, if you're, <laughs> what if someone does have a diagram of who writes in? They're a bigger fan than I expected to have. <laughs> and hopefully not planning to kill someone from the backseat of yeah. a car. Well. So then we'll get questioned. Well, thanks, thanks, uh, Rocky Dennis for yes. adjusting your name so that way the Ricks don't get confused. Yes, thank you. Um, Rocky Dennis is now only a dozen episodes away from being fully caught up, Ooh. Uh, which they share is very exciting, but also very sad because now they'll have to wait for new episodes. Oh, no. And Ricky Dennis's favorite kidnapping is uh, the, the Ballad of Fabian Bengtsson uh, from early 2005. He was the heir of a Swedish electronics chain, Siba, for all of you who buy your electronics in Sweden. Uh, he was kidnapped on the 17th of January by a group of men who demanded uh, 50 million Swedish kroner for his release. That's about five and a half million for those of you using USD. Yeah. Uh, he was kept in a soundproof box, and the, the SIBO website was used to, to communicate between the kidnappers and, and the family for, you know, ransom Stuff. negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. On the 3rd of February, Fabian was found alive. So we're talking like half a month later. Uh, He had managed to escape. Of course, during the time he was held, he became friends with the kidnappers. They they turned out to really like him. So they identified with him rather than him with them. Sort of a reverse uh, uh, Stockholm syndrome. Of course, this was not in Stockholm. It was in the second biggest Swedish city. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he made sure to let them know that, that they would still be his friends even after they collected his ransom and, and everything was water under the bridge. Yeah. Uh, so Fabian figured out where he was by listening for the ice cream van <laughs> and using that to, to guess at his location where he was. Like, the ice cream van comes at such and such a time, so I can tell the police that. So they'll, like, contact the ice cream people and, and know, like, where in the city yeah. to find... High-tech ice this... cream surveillance. I guess the soundproof box wasn't that soundproof, was it? No. 
But the, the kidnappers were all caught and given prison sentences from uh, ten, from two to ten years. Uh, Fabian became a CEO of the family company and main spokesperson for, for years to come. So thank you, Rocky Dennis. Thanks. And thanks to everybody who wrote in. That's all the letters we have to share today. If you would like to send us a letter, where can those go? Podcast at gmail.com. And we would love to hear your, your stories, your questions. Yes, your corrections. I'm saying it again like I always do. As well as responses to our regular prompts. Yes. So, darling, do you have a prompt for next time? For our next episode, I would like to hear people's favorite band. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Let's what? Get- what are you writing about? <laughs> uh, so again, those can go too. History Honey's podcast at gmail.com. And while you're out there, we sure would appreciate getting a, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever else you found us. Uh, it, it really does help us a great deal to know, you know, what people think. You can also tell a friend. What better way to make new friendships at a party than asking people our latest prompt? What's your favorite kidnapper? Or band. That's that's or band. More, that works too. More Either in tune way, with small know, talk. It depends on which way you want to go with that friendship. <laughs> What's your favorite kidnapper? And do you think you could learn from their example and improve on their methods? <laughs> I mean band. What's your favorite band? <laughs> do you like podcasts? I listen to this podcast. We we mentioned Riverdale, and, and therefore our other show, Sex Archie, a couple times in this episode, uh-huh. just by chance. Uh-huh. But I would like to recommend people check out our latest episode. It is a bonus episode that you're not even in. I'm, I'm not. I'm sorry to say. For everybody uh, who listens to the show who is interested in, in hearing about Final Bid, the, the game that I contributed to and was on Kickstarter back in the fall, that game is now finished. It is nearly out for sale, and uh, that recent Sex Archie bonus episode uh, is me talking to Jacob Randolph, the, the designer of the game, all, all about it, and specifically the, the portion that I did, which was on brand for that show. But I think it's an interesting look at uh, uh, the, the process of game design, at least as he and I did it this, yeah. in this one case. Yeah. So check that out. It has no butts talk, which is really what? Uh, off brand for sex, Archie. It is. How are you not talking about butts? There, there's no game mechanic for butts. <sighs> Back to the drawing board, I guess. Yep. <laughs> so with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. honey. Happy Valencrimes Day, everybody. Happy Valencrimes.